Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Teen Gen Talks, where the goal is to empower the youth of Glendale, connect youth to community resources, individuals, and organizations through interviews and discussions. I'm your host, Melissa. And I'm Desiree. We had the pleasure of talking to Patricia Park. Patricia is an associate professor of literature at American University, Fulbright Scholar in Creative Arts, Jerome Hill Artist Fellow, and author of the debut young adult novel, Imposter Syndrome and Other Confessions of Alejandra. Continue watching to learn more about author Patricia Park, and we hope you enjoy the interview. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk with us. We have a lot to discuss. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So I wanted to kick off the first question with asking about your relationship with writing and books. Um, how did that start? And did you always like to read and write? Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. My first um, illustrated series was called Messy Bessie. And it was about this girl named Bessie who was very messy. It was a little, it was a little on point, but what do you expect from, <laughs> from like a six-year-old? Um, and uh, she grows up and has like 20 kids. I, I don't know how this was, it was, maybe it was fantasy, right? <laughs> um, but to me, it was very realism, um, very much realism. So I've, yeah, I've always been a writer. And, and I think for me, you know, I wasn't like the most popular kid. Um, I didn't have a ton of friends. So during during recess or after lunch, all the other girls would kind of gab amongst each other. And I just always had my nose in a book. Um, and maybe for me, reading and by extension writing was like an escapism um, and where I could feel like uh, there were people who understood me um, and who got me and I felt like I belonged. So how did this translate into you then pursuing being an assistant professor of literature? Um, I actually have a job title change. I'm now an associate professor <laughs> of uh, yeah of creative writing in, in the literature department. Um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of the lessons that I learned along the way with creative writing, um, you know, when I wrote my first novel, Read Jane, and then I wrote my second novel, my first YA, Imposter Syndrome, is uh, nobody kind of quote unquote teaches you how to write a novel. You just stumble on a lot of roadblocks. You're kind of shooting in the dark, whatever analogy you want to do. And there were certain things that I did learn along the way. And, you know, I'm all about efficiency as much as possible, or I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. And I, and I love being able to talk with students, honestly, and I show them my outtakes files, or I'm like, look, there were 10 different versions. Sometimes I just show, I show like 10 different versions of the opening paragraph. Um, for for first regain and then imposter syndrome and i'm like look in this version there was a different point of view it was third person in this version the novel starts you know in a much later timeline in this version it's not even the main character it's like some other character and i think that's kind of a cool exercise because i'm with my teaching i i really just kind of want to break this myth that we have to be perfect the first time around um and i think especially as bipoc women that pressure is high because we're like damn, we only get one chance. And I, I don't believe in that because I feel like writing is rewriting. Here are all the like this pe the pieces of spaghetti or Play-Doh that I threw on the wall. Here's what stuck, but here's what didn't. Here are the crusty pieces <laughs> that like just kind of tumbled off the floor, you know, off the wall onto the floor. And I, um, I, I think the more we can kind of normalize that it's not perfect the first or even the 10th try, then the more we can be like, all right, it's all about the process. Let's let's figure this out. And let's workshop this together. Let's take a class together. Let's let's do the dirty work. 
And you mentioned Read Jane, which is your debut novel. Um, can you tell us a bit about the book and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, it's um, it's about a, a, a mixed race Korean American woman from Queens who's trying to get out of Queens. Uh, the first word is home and the last word is home. So it's kind of a journey for Jane to find home. Uh, but it's also a, a modern day retelling of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. For me, when I first read Jane Eyre, uh, I was I was in the sixth grade and I'm like, wow, her voice just spoke to me. She was poor, obscure, plain and little. This is how she self-identifies. And I'm like, wow, you know, she, it was the first time that such an underdog was not only, not only found a way to survive, but to thrive. And that spoke to me as, you know, an ethnic Korean girl, born and raised in Queens, um, in New York, in America, just trying to figure it out. And I thought, what would it look like if I took Jane Eyre and translated her to the world that I grew up in, um, Flushing, Queens, the, the world of Koreans and Queens. Um, and so so that that was that was the genesis for the novel and, and just trying to understand um, minorities within minorities and how, you know, mainstream America tells people like my character, Jane, uh, my other characters like, oh, well, you, you don't belong, you belong with them. But then what if the them is like, you're not one of us either. And, and that can feel really lonely. So I kind of wanted to give voice to that feeling of feeling like you belong neither here nor there. Read Jane, as you mentioned, is a reimagining Jane Eyre. How did you approach writing the story? What concepts from the original story did you want to make sure to maintain? I think it was the spirit of Jane's voice, of the original Jane's voice that I wanted to to capture. And what's cool about that novel is that the first person, like Jane Eyre lives in a Victorian society. She can't be like, what's up? I'm here to speak my truth. You know, they're like, no, be gone, be gone, servant. I mean, she was a governess, which is like maybe a step up from the servants, but then the servants at least had solidarity with each other. So she was kind of in this nebulous space. She was, um, and so you, so you find when, when I was reading the novel, what struck me was she, she couldn't really say much, right? She couldn't, she had to perform to Victorian women expectations, but then her interiority got to go a little wild. She's like, yeah, nope. This is what I really think. I mean, but in Victorian language, right? <laughs> um, and, and how wonderful that like 200 years after Jane Eyre, after the publication, the book is still, it feels fresh and relevant, except for the kind of creepy Edward Rochester Me Too vibes. Like I was not feeling that and I was rewriting that. So that was part of what's what spoke to me of, about the original novel. And then how did I go about? Yeah, um, I, it was like playing Goldilocks with the voice when I was when I was writing my Jane Eyre, when I was writing Read Jane, because the first version, she was already a fully formed person on page one. She's like, yeah, here's here's what I think about things and like, screw you people like, uh, but it didn't make sense because then if that's how she was on page one, like where would she end up on page 300? She's already, she kind of already went through the journey of finding herself. And so I had to keep playing. And so I went, I was too strong in the first draft, like by the next bunch of drafts. And she was like too reticent and too submissive and too too passive. Um, and, and with Victorian characters, like they are passive to some, even the most active ones, to some degree, there's like the metaphorical waiting by the phone. Is he going to call? Like, you know, is, is this going to come by the, by the courier? Are they going to send post the letter? <laughs> you know, you can't just like show up and, and be there. 
And so that was like the overcorrection. And then finally I, I found, I found a way in between and, and I have little Easter eggs where, you know, there are some characters who are like, like, um, Mrs. O'Gall is like a customer at a grocery store and, but the novel stands on its own because I, I know that not everyone has read Jane Eyre. So it's an adventure of a, a woman finding her way, you know, a woman from Queens who's like trying to figure herself out and, and her journey to find home literally and figuratively. And when it comes for writing for adults versus writing YA, how do you tackle each one different? Yeah, and this is something I talk about with my students all the time, you know, and I do workshops on this. Um, uh, some of it is voice, um, but I, I really, but both my novels are first person. Um, so I think it, I really do want to underscore with YA, it's a lot of times it's the immediacy of an experience. So with teen characters and teen protagonists, they're experiencing a lot of firsts, right? Like first, um, you know, first betrayal, first friendship, first time I get asked to the prom, like first time I'm, pl I'm applying to colleges. And these are such big emotions. And um, I think one of the beauties of what YA can do well is that it drops the reader right into that experience of the character, right? Like we're experiencing this unfolding hot and quick and in real time. But then the the flip side or the catch 22 to that is how do you do it without like, oh my God, like, I, I, like just shut up already or, or, or like, oh, I can't stand this. Like, oh, it's too much. And so those are different drafts, right? Some drafts, you really lean into the stream of consciousness, other drafts, you pull back. And then by the end, you've reworked different iterations. So you kind of come to this. And for me, sometimes I like to use the other characters, right? Sometimes the older characters, the parents, an older cousin, or even another friend who is like kind of the sounding board against the main character. So against Alejandra, she's so in her own world, right? And in her own space. And for you all, like who are, who are you know, um, working with teen readers as well, um, sometimes I love like this, this, the balls of energy they bring, right? They like drop their backpack on their, on the table and they're like, oh my God, or on their desk. They're like, this is what happened. And the way that they're like kind of anxiously, you know, excitedly telling the story, if you were to actually literally transcribe their words, <laughs> like what is happening? So us as writers, right? We have to then take that exuberance of the immediacy of the experience and then temper it with like, okay, well, this is how we need to build the scene. This is how we have to show what other characters are feeling, even though our character is not able to see what they feel, but how can we give different clues about expressions that they make or like body language um, or things they say that are misinterpreted and, and kind of create around your scene. So it's such a fun exercise to work with with that and to work with kind of this dramatic irony of what does the reader know? What does the character know? And what is the tension between that? So your YA debut novel is titled Imposter Syndrome and Other Confessions of Alejandra Kim. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and how it came to be? Yeah, Alejandra or Ale is, um she's a Korean Argentine American girl from Queens and she's in her senior year of high school um, and she wants to get out of Queens so badly. Uh, she thinks her ticket out is to to go to her dream school, um, wider college, and, um, and she, you know, she thinks it's her ticket to this kind of class of people who have already arrived, um, an academic kind of progressive type that's just everything Queens is not. Um, she's also dealing with 
this the mysterious death of her father um Papi died mysteriously on the tracks of the seven train and um she's in this critical moment it's a kind of coming of age um where she is like who am i um i'm on the precipice of becoming an adult i just want to get out of dodge but what do you do when you're dodge new york city is like everybody else's destination and i try to do that i'm a i'm a comedic writer um a humorous writer so i'm trying to show like all right there's the things that alice says at school as she's code switching and then there's the things like her queen's brain actually thinks and she doesn't belong in any space she's just like trying to get it right and figure it all out and what drew you into wanting to write a YA novel this time around? Um, you know, I really have my students to thank. Um, you know, my students at American University, when I when I first started teaching there, oh my gosh, um, so many years ago, they a lot of my students were like, you know, we want to write YA. We love YA. And I'm like, what are some of your favorites? And I started with their recs and just went down the rab- rabbit hole. And I I just fell in love with the YA voice, this kind of it's like kind of a no BS, funny and fresh perspective. Like teens hold you accountable, right? (laughs) Even if you don't want to be your most authentic self, they force you to be, right? Because they can see through that. Um, And uh, it just reminded me of, you know, when I was, so when I was in high school, I'm from Queens, but I went to high school in the Bronx and I spent four hours a day commuting to and from uh, you know, uh, so I, you spend a lot of time, you learn a lot about the world on when you spend four hours on New York city public transit. And I heard a million different Englishes a day. So I'd hear all this kind of dialogue. I'd hear the chatter of teens, my classmates, I'd hear other kids going to school. I'd hear business people like going to and from their office. I'd hear parents with their children. And I wanted to capture it all. Like I'm a, I'm a, um, New York writer. I write about Queens from Queens. Um, and I wanted to tell stories about my community, other communities and how we're all kind of clashing together, but living harmoniously. Um, and, and I thought Allah's voice was the way to do that. Um, and for, for me, you know, I, I, I went to a Quaker college. Uh, I went to Swarthmore and it, I thought that was going to be my ticket out. I'm like done with you people (laughs) in New York. Like, I just want to go to this, like, idyllic campus away from everything, from what I knew. Um, and I think Allah's journey is a lot of what I experienced in that it was like Goldilocks, too hot, too cold, trying to find your middle. For you, what was the hardest part of writing imposter syndrome and other confessions of Alejandra Kim? Um, I think the hardest part was, was trying to nail down the structure and the storylines, both the like concrete um, mile markers, right? Okay, is it going to be senior year? Okay, if it's senior year, then early decision deadlines are this date. Notification deadlines are this date. Regular decision is this. The school year ends here. SATs would be here, you know. So uh, there was that. And then it was managing the emotional storylines. So one thing I struggled with was, um, you know, Papi is already dead. He's he's um, been dead for for like eight eight or nine months before the novel begins, and um, I didn't know where to have that happen, uh, but we don't learn that he's dead until I think the end of chapter four. Um, so spoiler, <laughs> it's an early spoiler. Um, not too far in, let me see. Page 22 is when we learn it, right? But there are little hints along the way. So things like that, factual emotional events that have happened. When do you place that? So in an earlier draft, Buppy was still alive as the no- novel was marching on. 
And then the novel just became about, um, you know, his death and how does that happen? I had a diversity assembly that initially happened a year before the novel began. And then, I, so it was just mentioned as a one sentence. And then I'm like, but what is then the emotional, what is, what is the engine or the story structure for the actual novel? So then I moved the assembly, which becomes a big moment between Ella and her, her best friend who is, who, who claims allyship. So I moved that up sooner and then it became a major plot point. So there are things like that, that we as writers are just trying to negotiate. All right, if I had the novel star, you know, here, then how is that going to affect her emotional state? And then the lens through which she's viewing the world. Um, but if I start this later, um, you know, then it's already in the past. And then like we talked about the immediacy of a moment of an emotion, it's so far removed. If it happened yesterday, then it may as well have happened 10 years ago in a sense, right? So it was managing all these storyline plot points. And maybe one last thing I'll mention that was difficult in writing the book. There were so many, right? But um, it was then managing all the storylines. Um, and I have Ala just trying to get into college. Like that is one major storyline. That's the concrete desire. Tied to that is her emotional desire for belonging and acceptance, um, and her journey to accept herself um, and, and giving up her own imposter syndrome. So there's that storyline. And then there's like the storyline with her best friend. They were fast friends from for their first year in, in high school at Quaker Oats Prep. But where do they end up at the end? And then how many scenes do you write? How many scenes have I written that I've just condensed to one scene, right? And I've cut the others. And then where do you place that information? You know, should that happen before the break? to part two should it happen halfway in and then the storyline with her best friend billy diaz from back uh from queens um storylines with her cousin michael who's going through like some microaggressions at his at his corporate job uh storylines with her mom storylines with like other kids at school the teachers um it was kind of on and off again romance thing like where do <laughs> where do you put all those puzzle pieces right just like spitting all these dinner plates and trying to place that that's why again like back to what i said um before about um the perfect the first draft is never perfect the 10th draft may not even be perfect and that's that's fine let's let's muck it up before we can make it polished you know so just get in in the process get your elbows dirty elbows dirty get your hands dirty get elbow deep all the metaphors all the mixed metaphors <laughs> And um, I think you talked about this a little bit, but was writing about an adolescent, did it, I mean, you did mention how it brought back, you know, memories of your teen years, but was it in maybe a way a healing process too for you? Um, you know, I, I say that I, writing imposter syndrome helped me get over my own imposter syndrome. Um, I think because, you know, the conversations surrounding imposter syndrome have changed. And I think it's, I think this is a good thing. You know, by the time I was done editing the book, um, then there were conversations that said, you know, stop telling BIPOC women that we have imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And then, then there was another, so that was already a kind of a wave of progression, right? Like, hey, have we outgrown this term? Do we even need it? But then there was another conversation also led by BIPOC women saying, Actually, it can be very freeing to name the thing that we're feeling versus just feeling like self-gaslit, right? So then there was that conversation. And then I also believe, you know, the things that were high stakes to me when I was 17 years old, um, 
your priorities kind of change, right? So, oh my God, like, so I, I went stag to my prom and yeah, that, that would like be capital L loser when I was 17, maybe. Um, but I didn't, I didn't care that much. And then now look, I'm telling you, I'm like admitting this in public, right? I don't care. The stakes are so much lower with per, the perspective of time. Um, and, and I, I think, that's the same thing with imposter syndrome. So the things that gave me imposter syndrome when I was 17, like, oh my gosh, like if I say this in class, are they gonna, are they gonna think this of me? You know, if I'm not wearing this kind of clothes or, you know, this kind of cut of jeans, like, uh, is it all just gonna question that I belonged, that I deserve my spot at the table? Like right when I went to college, I spent the first year like terrified that, I just had this like low level terror, terror that someone would from the registrar would knock on my dorm door and be like, yeah, there's another Patricia Park from Queens and you're taking her spot. No boss. <laughs> um, and now I'm like, I laugh about it. I'm like, what? I graduated. I did just fine. But the stakes get higher. I get imposter syndrome about other things professionally, you know, and especially as as, as a professor, um, as an academic and as a as a as a published novelist now I have imposter syndrome about other things. So the game just keeps, you just have to keep like raising your game, I guess. Um, so those are some things I learned along the way slash things I'm still <laughs> struggling with. Ellie is a appealing protagonist. In your opinion, what makes a good protagonist that readers can connect with and like? Thank you for saying she, you know, that, that you enjoy your time with her. Um, and, you know, I, it is meaningful for me for readers to, like to appreciate her journey. But I also think that it's okay to write unlikable characters too. Um, and I, I think, you know, especially for girls and women, and especially for girls and women who are BIPOC, like there's so much pressure that we have to make characters be the kinds of people we would, you know, want to have like Sunday brunch with and get our nails done with and, and all the things, right? And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm great. For me, I always try to create sympathetic characters. Like, can we see what their journey is? So even a character like Laurel, who is the, the best friend, who is white, who is trying to be an ally. Um, like, it's okay if, if readers don't quote unquote like her, but if they can find sympathy with her, like, oh, okay. So these things that she did I understand where she's coming from. I'm sympathetic to her struggles. Like that's really important to me too. Um, so I, I I love that we're in this moment where women writers can do, you know, can do all these things, like have create all kinds of characters, all kinds of, um, yeah, characters that maybe we do want to have brunch with and characters that are like, you know, maybe, maybe we'll just keep it to like a semi-monthly coffee date. <laughs> Maybe we'll just keep it to like a Slack channel, occasional like, work-related correspondence. Um, you know, as long as I think, um, for me, I'm always interested in showing like where a character is coming from. You know, what made them, what motivated them to do the thing that they did? And do we agree with it or do we not? Uh, whether we do or not, it's like, oh, I understand. It was because Laurel had this like high pressure dad, you know, who was just like, like a dinosaur in a in a china shop, you know, like blundering all over the place, and she's overcorrecting in this way. And college is such a high stakes moment, right? Senior year of high school. Where am I going to go? What is going to determine the rest of my life? Um, and so I think that's that's really cool about YA that we could be like, 
Yeah, um, things are super high stakes in that moment. And then maybe afterwards we look back and we're like, hey, you know, I, I, I crested that Mount Everest. Now I have a new Mount Everest. And that's like, that was, now that's like a hill, you know, whatever, no big deal. Climb it in an hour. Okay. <laughs> and What's Eating Jackie O is going to be your next YA novel that will come out next year. So congrats with that. Thank you. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit about it a little bit? Sure. First off, Jackie has a cameo in imposter syndrome. Um, yeah, I, I, I love all my novels are like part of this Mwaha, Patricia Park multiverse. Um, and like a character in one will have a cameo in the other. So so Bobby in Imposter Syndrome had a cameo in Regine, my first novel, and, and so forth. But What's Eating Jackie O, Jackie O, O-H, but I'm ching. <laughs> uh, she's, a, she's a, you know, a teenage girl from, from Queens, and she wants to become a chef. Like, that's her, that's her be-all, end-all. Like, and her parents uh, are really pressuring her to follow the model minority route that they took. You know, their, their Ivy League, MBA, law school, yada, yada, corporate, yada, yada, yada. And they're like, Jackie, this is how you have to be an Asian in America. This is what's expected of us. And she's like, I'm done being your model minority. So she she uses food to express her food journey. Um, she works at her grandparents' deli in Midtown. And then she ends up on a on a um on a reality TV cooking show where she competes against other teens. Um, and you know, she's dodging feedback like up the kimchi flavor in your dish. And she's like, ah. <laughs> Um, and, and she's just trying to figure out who she is both on and off the plate. So it's been fun. You know, I've had to eat a lot of delicious food in the name of research. Woe is me. <laughs> Boo -hoo. You know? I've also had to cook a lot of awful, like I'm, I'm not a, you know, ask anyone in my family, I'm not a good cook, but I have subjected them all to my cooking because again, for, for, you know, it's method writing for, for novel research. Um, you two are more than welcome to come over for dinner. Um, I can't say you'll like it, but you will have had an interesting experience. <laughs> so you have done the My Gotham Comedy Club show. Has comedy always been part of your life? Uh, <laughs> I'm actually doing stand-up comedy for novel research. Again, method writing for, for a, an upcoming novel um, about an aspiring stand-up comic. So I'm just throwing myself humiliating myself in public for this but all my novels are are humorous um and I I realized um that I use comedy I, I never I, I this is how I had imposter syndrome right I was writing humorous novels but I never called myself a humorist or a co comedian because I didn't think I earned the title I had such imposter syndrome about it and it was only you know when I would meet with schools or or read reviews or something that I'm like, oh, well, you know, they thought it was funny too. I think humor is really important because I'm tackling pretty weighty issues of identity, class, race, culture, um, set in the backdrop of of a, a diverse place like Queens and, and New York City. And the last thing I want to do to a reader is like, here is a 10 ton boulder I want to put on your shoulders. Have fun. Bye. You know, <laughs> I'm not interested in doing that as a as an as a writer or as a novelist. I think I do owe it to the readers to make them want to stay on the journey with your characters. And so I think humor is kind of my sneak attack where I'm like, Haha, I'll make you laugh. And then, oh, wait, here's this like added 
here's like the fiber, you know, <laughs> here's the pureed spinach that you're getting with, with the LOLs, I guess. Um, and, uh, so, so that's my approach. I think, I think humor is used. I use humor to try to kind of cut through, um, some of that, that, that richness and the heaviness of, of these weighty issues, um, as a way to talk about something meaningful. So it's not just all like, you know, you know sometimes you go to these stand-up shows and, and then it's, some guy who's like, am I right? Like, ha, ha, ha. and you're like, okay, ha, ha, you know, one-liners. And then afterwards, like you didn't think about anything at all. You leave and you can't even remember what they talked about, but I'm trying to, you know, I, I would like to kind of, um, yeah, puree the spinach and hide it among these other, these other more enjoyable things. I love how, you know, you bring to light a concept that many of us BIPOC people face and that's not being able to feel one or the other. And you also bring humor to it, as you said, um, and anyone, anyone that has felt or has felt out of place through your books can feel understood and appreciated. So thank you for that. Oh um, my gosh. Thank you for saying that. That's, that's all I'm trying to do. Thank no, you. Yeah, like, honestly, honestly, you tackle like a, a topic that I think like I felt too with like not being a hundred or not feeling a hundred percent like Guatemalan and not feeling a hundred percent like, you know, American. Um, but you, you shine a light that it's, that we're like, you know, 200%, we're like both, you know, that 100% of one race and then a hundred percent of the other. Um, yeah. So just thank you for that. Um, but in the end, what does all of this mean to you being able to share your voice through your books? I, I think, so no one gets into novel writing. It, it's, it's so hard because, you know, you work on a novel for, for, for years and you never know if it will see the light of day and even if it seems the light of day even if you quote unquote win and you get it published whether it will even make a blip or have any sound right um a tree you know falling in the forest or whatever that metaphor is it never meant more to me until I became a novelist um because I've had failed novels as well um or novels that never did get to see the light of day so, you know, there's no ROI. I, I, I tell my students this all the time, like, you know, other professions, you put in a day's work, you see a day's, at least a day's salary, right? <laughs> um, and, and maybe you see other kind of change or some kind of return on your investment of time or energy or, or skill set. Um, I think really, Desiree, what you said, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm like mic drop Patty out because, um, for me, if I could just touch one reader who has felt similarly lonely, displaced, they feel like they don't belong. You know, I'm not Guatemalan American. I don't know your experience, Desiree, but I feel like anyone who has felt marginalized, we have shared territory, whether it's marginalized for X, Y, or Z. Um, and so I just remember how sometimes like I just felt so lonely and misunderstood, especially as a teenager. And I was like sitting on the subway, sitting on a bus, sitting in a classroom and being like so frustrated, like, oh, why, why do I feel so unseen? We didn't even have that term, you know, when I was coming of age, like, what does it mean to be seen and unseen? Like that, that didn't exist. It was just a literal, it was just a literal verb, right? Um, and so even phrases like that. So if I could really, yeah, touch, you know, touch one reader feeling, feeling similarly displaced and, and make them feel a little more hopeful for the world. 
I don't know. I guess I, I, I feel like maybe my work is done again, like mic drop. No. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm just grateful for experiences like that. And, and that, that's so rad because, uh, what's the alternative? Um, I, I don't know, just feeling, feeling like we're all in our lonely pods, right? I don't want that. <laughs> Before we end, we have some rapid fire questions. The first question is, what is your favorite color? Right now, teal. Um, what's your favorite genre to read? I think humorous essays. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? You will find your tribe. Hang in there. If you could have three people, dead or alive, for dinner guests, who would they be? Edith Wharton, um, the ultimate New Yorker. Um, also, she like threw quite a. She threw like pretty awesome dinner parties. I saw. I've I've stayed at her mansion. I mean, she didn't invite me. She was already dead. But uh, um, she knew how to throw throw a dinner party. Um, I think um, I've been I've been um into Aparna Nancherla lately. Um, she's a comedian. I think she'd be a lot. She's really dry too. I think she'd be fun. I think she and Edith would like you know tete a tete, and I'd get to like be a fly on the wall, and. I don't know. I think Kurt Vonnegut, I think he'd be, I would love to see, I would love to see the three of them go. And I'm just like sitting back, <laughs> drinking my tea, taking notes. What is a song that you have on repeat currently? Um, I think T Taylor Swift's Karma <laughs> <laughs> on repeat. I'm like, I feel seen and vindicated. <laughs> um, what do you want your legacy to be? She made people feel welcomed. What is a book that you have read recently or are currently reading that you would recommend? Um, I'm right now I'm reading Aparna Nancherla's Unreliable Narrator, uh, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. And I'm just, I'm so seeing myself in these pages and just relating to so many of the experiences she's had as a, as a woman comic of color, who's just trying to like get through this all boys club and trying to grapple with her own imposter syndrome it's it's pretty it's pretty rad well thank you so much patricia we learned a lot about you thank you for taking your time out of your day to sit down with us and talk can you let everyone at home know about any upcoming projects and where they could speak with you yeah i mean i have what's eating jackie o coming out next year and uh if you want to come and laugh with or at my stand-up journey i'm i'm posting stuff on instagram at at Patricia Park 718. Um, and uh, yeah, you can see all my my corny jokes, <laughs> all my dad jokes that are like just met with crickets. Um, so those are some things I've got coming up. Thanks so much. Oh, yay. Yay. Yay.